Hey, Max, do you remember how I once said that I was worried I would spend this entire podcast chasing the first insanity high of Curse Be the Child from episode one? Yeah. Well, great news. I'm not worried anymore. Welcome to Second to Die, a horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole. And welcome back, everybody. So, are you saying that you found something equally as crazy as Crispy the Child for this week? I did. I'm so excited. Oh, well, that sounds better than what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> well, that makes me not excited. Well... Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say you should get excited about this, but you might at least be somewhat interested in it, because it's something that maybe you want to know about so that I could save you the pain of having to watch it. Although, okay, it's not that bad. It just wasn't that great. I really like that that's your qualifier. It's not that bad. Yeah, so, okay. Obviously, this is the penultimate week in my October Halloween-themed series that I roughly made up. And before, I had kind of teased doing Halloween movie with Season of the Witch because... um, Because Season of the Witch was terrible? Yeah. Awful? Yeah. Boring? Yes. All of those things. So, to make up for... I don't know. Leaving everybody with whatever the horror equivalent of blue balls is. I, this week, am doing Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. Well, at least it has Michael Myers in it. Yeah, he returned. But not necessarily for the better. So, as we've discussed before, I'm a huge fan of the Halloween movies. You have seen the first two because we watched them together. Yes. The first one is incredible. It's very atmospheric. It has that great late 70s vibe to it. Bell bottoms and cool hair. I liked it a lot. Well, so obviously people know that Halloween was essentially created by John Carpenter. And then John Carpenter and Deborah Hill were involved in the first three Halloween movies in making them. As I mentioned before with Season of the Witch, they didn't want Michael Myers to be back in it. They were trying to step away from that and create this new franchise. That went horribly wrong. I was about to say, then they realized how bad of an idea that was. Yeah, so because that went horribly wrong, uh, executive producer Mustafa Akkad wanted to resurrect the series, but bring it back to its roots with Michael Myers. And... Interestingly enough, and to probably give you a little bit of a glimpse into how this movie went, Carpenter and Hill submitted a script to Akkad, who rejected it, calling it, quote, too cerebral. So, I guess, I don't know. Smart horror is not good horror to him. Well, I mean, the first two were very, like, slasher, like, just slasher horror. Well, I think that there was a little bit of a sort of cerebral or psychological element because, you know, Michael Myers is a kid killing his parents and nobody knew what was going on. 
And I got it was I don't know, it was slasher, but it was I don't know. I feel like it made you think a little bit. Yeah. Anyway, so after the script got developed, Carpenter and Hill basically were like I don't know, all offended or something, and we're like, we don't want anything to do with this movie. So they sold their interest in it to Akkad, and really sadly enough, the guy who had written their script that was too cerebral, they basically just called him up and were like, we sold our interest, and that did not include your script. Oh. Yeah, so poor him. So he just got, like, no money for the work that he did? I don't know if they, I mean, I don't really know exactly how it works. I don't know if they paid him to write the script, like... I would assume if you write a script that's unaccepted, or if you're specifically contracted, you would get paid for that work. I think if you write a script and, like, submit it just kind of, like, on your own accord, you probably wouldn't. But I believe that Carpenter and Hill, like, asked him to write it. Oh, okay. I was about to say, like, that is profoundly fucked up, but all right. Yes. So, Akkad basically was like, let's get back to the basics of Halloween. However... The only member of the original Halloween cast that returned for the four was Donald Placence, who plays Dr. Loomis, the psychiatrist from the first two. Yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis was asked to reprise her role, but enough time had passed. This is basically in 1988. So 10 years had passed since the first Halloween. And I actually can't even remember when they made the second one, but... The third one was 1982, so this is well after those movies. So Jamie Lee Curtis had been in a bunch of stuff and was kind of like a big star at this point and was sort of like, yeah, I don't want to be in that film anymore. Yeah. Although she did end up coming back for the seventh film, which was Halloween H2O. So they, Was that the one that just came out? No. H2O came out, I think, in like 2002. I could probably look this up, but uh, I'm not okay. going to. So it was filmed in Salt Lake City, Utah, instead of the instead of California, which is where the previous Halloween movies were all filmed because of rising costs. They filmed it. I just thought this was kind of funny. They filmed it in March. And because it was March, but it's Halloween instead of Halloween, they had to import leaves and giant squash, which they painted orange to resemble pumpkins. Yikes. Can you just imagine, like, working on that set? Be like, guys, we got our leaf shipment. You need to scatter these about in a fall-like manner. I don't know. I just thought it was funny. I just pictured these people in my head, like, going and laying leaves on people's lawns. Like, it's fall, we promise. Delicately. One by one. And the painted pumpkins are kind of funny. I should have, to be honest, I did a lot of my, like, research after I'd already watched this movie. I wish I had... Tried to see if I could notice it, but I didn't really notice the pumpkins looking weird, so I guess it was successful. So good job whoever painted those pumpkins. You're you're the true hero of this film. That doesn't give me a lot of hope for the remainder of this film. Yeah. <laughs> um, other thing, last thing that's kind of key before I talk about a little bit about the plot, which I'm going to go through quite quickly because it's not that interesting. I mean, it is what it is. But George P. Wilbur, he's who played Michael Myers in this movie wore hockey pads under his costume to make him more physically imposing. But this is something I also didn't know before I watched it. But while watching it, I literally was like, something is wrong with this guy. The way he is standing is weird. I was like, 
Like, to be truthful, it kind of made me think he needed, like, a fiber supplement or something. He was standing really strangely. He just looked, oh, dear, sweet baby. Yeah. But I think he is actually a nice guy because they also said that uh, Danielle Harris plays this girl, Jamie. She's a young girl in this. She's meant to be Jamie Lee Curtis's niece. Like, her character, Laurie Strode, her niece from the previous movies. So she's really young. And the actress was young. And... To not, like, give her nightmares or scare her, uh, George P. Wilbur made sure that every time he was, like, around her, he took off his mask and let her know that none of this was real. That's precious. Yeah. Okay, so, that being said, I will talk to you a little bit about the plot. I thought you might be kind of interested in this because you've seen the first two. The fourth one is basically just like the second one in which it is a direct sequel to two except for the fact that 10 years has passed but they're like michael myers has been in a coma this whole time so basically they kind of said that at the end of two he wasn't killed he was just put into a coma and then at the start of four he's in a coma in this like criminal mental hospital and they're transporting him somewhere and i don't know why so the fact that 10 years has passed means that it is not essentially a direct sequel 10 years have passed well, but nothing has happened because Myers is in a coma, I guess. Okay. So I guess that's what I meant. To be honest, I think it was supposed to be more direct, but the movie was literally made 10 years later. I mean, Halloween 1, the the night that like Michael Myers has grown up, is 1978. So 10 years had gone by, but I think they wanted it to basically just kind of pick up. Because, um, like... Nobody else has really aged that much in it. I don't know. But I guess in real life, everyone aged. I don't know. Whatever. Anyways, it's 10 years later. That's that's the whole point of this. Okay. Okay, so it opens up on a dark and stormy night. And they're basically transporting a comatose Michael Myers. I don't really remember where. I was going to go back and look it up, but I'm not sure that they said it. But they, I, it kind of just seems like they're transporting him to set up like a plot for a movie. But the whole point is that he's been in a coma for 10 years and has not woken up. So he's on a stretcher and he's in this ambulance thing. And the paramedic basically mentions um, that Myers has a niece. It's like his only living relative named Jamie who lives in Haddonfield, which is the original town. And upon hearing that he has a niece, Myers comes to life and he kills one of the paramedics immediately. Oh, boy. By sticking his thumb through the guy's forehead. I don't know how that happens. Through his... Okay. Sure. Yeah, it was really dumb, to be honest with you. Yeah, no. I. Mm, okay, keep... I mean, I'm all of a sudden just thinking of the... Um, the giant safety pin from Killer Workout. <laughs> That's all I can think of right now for some odd reason. I mean, that was honestly more entertaining than this. The, other, the weird thing about this movie and the death scenes... And I was going to kind of talk about this at the end, but I'll mention it now... All the death scenes were super not scary and very unsatisfying. Like, they weren't interesting. They were just kind of like, oh, okay. I don't know. I don't know if it's the way that they were filmed. I don't know if it's just what happened. But it did. none of it made me like them very much. Yeah. And I like good death scenes. And some of them, 
I don't know. I'll describe some of them, not all of them. It, but every time somebody died, I was just kind of like, oh, okay. I never once felt like suspense in this movie. But like in the original Halloween, you do. Especially when they do like the like first person view of Michael Myers. Yeah. When he's like going up the stairs and shit. Yeah. So anyways. Okay. So then we jump and we meet Michael Myers niece. Her name is Jamie. She is, I don't remember how old. She can't be, I mean, maybe like eight or nine or something like that. She's super whiny, but it is what it is. She in the movie is the daughter of Laurie Strode, Jamie Lee Curtis's character from the first two. And interestingly enough, they just basically, because Curtis didn't want to be in it, the way that they handled it is they essentially just said that Curtis died in a car crash shortly after the events of Halloween 2. But then they bring her back. She does come back. Um, I don't know how because I haven't seen H2O and I don't have that much of an interest in it. So I'm not sure what they do to justify that. But in this movie, the sort of like canon of the plot is that Laurie Strode died in a car crash after, I guess, after having a kid with who knows whom. I don't know. It's very clear that like they had to just write her out of the script and like justify having another member of her family because that's what they wanted. Yikes. Yes. So at this point, Jamie is living with a foster family and they have another daughter named Rachel who is a bit older. She's like high school kid and she's kind of taking care of Jamie slash being her friend and stuff. Yeah. Okay. So. Then it kind of jumps to Halloween night just the next day. <laughs> I thought it was funny. So Rachel, the girl, the, I guess I'll probably call her Jamie's sister, but it's not. It's her foster sister. Yeah. She wakes up and there's this like weird scene where they're eating breakfast. And Rachel's mom is like, you need to eat more breakfast, Rachel. And she's like, mom, I'm on a diet. Do you want an oinker for a daughter? But that is kind of a weird statement and funny. But the issue that I had with it is... When the mom says this, she's literally eating an entire bagel and slathering it with cream cheese. So, like, what does her mom want her to eat? What else does her mother expect of her? Like, that's a pretty big breakfast. She, I mean, she's already eating a handful of carbs and fat. She's not a farmhand, you know? Like, <laughs> she's shipping her off to the factory. I don't know. She needs a full English breakfast or something. So, I don't know. I, I thought that was funny. I'm hungry now. God, when aren't you hungry, though? It's almost time for your second second afternoon snack. My first afternoon snack. Thank you very much. Uh, okay, so then we see Dr. Loomis and the sheriff. I'm very much so um, paraphrasing and skipping ahead a lot of this stuff because it's there's a lot of like really boring scenes. So particularly involving the police and the doctor basically being like, why didn't you tell me you moved Michael Myers? And the sheriff being like, we don't have to tell you. It wasn't in the script. You know, shit like that. So Dr. Loomis and the sheriff are investigating uh, the ambulance that was transporting Myers obviously crashed. It was turned over. And the doctor asks the detective that found it, how many bodies there are. And the detective is like, it's just too hard to tell. They were all chewed up, but it's like chewed up. I don't, I think he meant like in from the crash or something. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, that, that makes more sense. But, but it didn't explode or anything. It's like, what kind of a detective can't count bodies? Like how many skulls did you find? That seems like a real easy way to do it. True. But then, I don't know. That gives Loomis essentially the, the fuel to be like, 
Michael Myers is free again. And he is. There's a scene where Michael kills a car mechanic. It's dumb. Then, back at Jamie's school, Jamie didn't wear a costume. I don't know why. I guess she's not a huge fan of Halloween. I never wore costumes in elementary school. Like, to school, I should elaborate. Well, all the other kids did. And they're making fun of Jamie, basically calling her an orphan. Oh, my God. (laughs) And I say basically, they literally call her an orphan. And little kids are so fucked up. Yeah, they are. And then ba- and then they also say that her uncle's the boogeyman. Oh yeah, I completely forgot. Michael Myers is Jamie Lee Curtis's brother. Right? Yes, in the first movie. Yeah, completely forgot. All right. Carry on. Yeah, the whole yeah, cuz the whole point is that Myers, well through the franchise, the whole point is that Myers' aim is to kill off all the members of his family. Yes. Why? I don't know. I think they talk about it in The Curse of Michael Myers. I have not seen the later Halloween movies. I don't like to ruin franchises in my head, so I avoid them. But who knows? Now that I watch everything under the sun for this, maybe I'll get to it. So after school, Rachel is told by her parents that she basically has to take Jamie out for trick-or-treating and to babysit her on Halloween. She's kind of bummed because she wanted to hang out with her boyfriend, Brady, but at the end of the day, she has to do it. So... She takes Jamie to a store to buy a Halloween costume, and it just happens to be the store that Brady works at. Halloween day? Yeah. So you're just going to get, like, what no one else wanted. Awesome. Good for you. Well, they're at this kind of, like, drugstore hybrid thing. Actually, I think it's the same store from the first movie that Michael gets his mask from. But it's, like, this kind of, like, hardware store that also sells masks. I don't know. Mm -mm. Like a small town but fancier Rite Aid or something. The 80s were a weird time. Yeah, but I guess part part of the point is that we, we are introduced to Brady, who is Rachel's boyfriend. He's kind of not great, but Jamie picks out a costume. She grabs a clown costume that the first thing I thought was that it's the exact same costume that Michael Myers wears when he's like the kid in the opening of Halloween. Oh. But... I looked it up. It is the exact same design, but the colors are slightly different. I believe Michael's was red and yellow, and the one that Jamie grabs is red and I think it was silver. I'm doing this by memory, but yeah. In either way, one of the colors was different, but the actual like costume itself and the fact that it had this cheesy little mask on it, um, same thing. So I thought that was actually kind of cool. I yeah. Thought, kind of like a little nod. So Rachel basically has to talk to Brady at the store and cancel her date with him because now she's trick-or-treating. Yeah. So while that's happening, Jamie thinks that she sees Michael Myers and, like, freaks out and starts screaming, but then nobody's there. But then, like, maybe he was there because you kind of see, like, his face in a reflection. I think what was supposed to have happened is he actually did show up and he took another one of the exact same masks, which... Basically, Michael gets a new mask because obviously he didn't have the same mask because he was in a coma for 10 years. And they took away his mask. Very rude. Well, I mean, he just couldn't breathe with that mask on. Oh, God. No, nope. we're not <laughs> even we are not even getting into that. Uh-uh. Um, OK, so then it goes back to Rachel and Jamie's house. And this is the first time in the movie that we get the iconic first-person view from Michael Myers, and he's sort of, like, walking around the house. They're in there. He goes upstairs, starts looking through Jamie's personal things, finds, like, a shoebox of 
pictures and like pictures of of Jamie Lee Curtis's character from the previous movie. It's kind of like creepstery, but that's all that happens. Okay, so that makes me uncomfortable. All right, keep going. Yeah, I know. Like he has no sense of privacy. So, anyways, Rachel and Jamie go trick or treating. They go to a few places, but this is the best scene. It's very short. <laughs> so they stop by Brady's house to trick or treat, and. <laughs> Rachel goes up, obviously, with Jamie. They ring the doorbell to do trick-or-treating, but Brady doesn't answer. Instead, Rachel's BFF Kelly answers, <gasps> wearing an oversized men's t-shirt and nothing else. Oh, my God. Yeah, so she is not being cool. Also, okay, also, who answers the door at somebody else's house wearing only a t-shirt? And I mean, like, only a t-shirt. Teenagers who think that's cute. Yeah. I mean, it was long. It was, like, long enough to be the t-shirt. Oh, my God. Do you remember when we were at the movies? Oh, <laughs> my God. Okay. Yeah. Keep. You can finish and telling the story, but yes. <laughs> there was this girl. What did... I think we had seen Dr. Sleep. Is that right? Maybe. And I, we saw something. And when we came out, there was this... I mean, those girls could not have been more than high school. They were probably high school. Yeah. And one of them was wearing just a sweatshirt that she thought she was being cute and wearing it like a sweatshirt dress, but it was just like a regular size sweatshirt that was maybe two or three inches longer. And you could just see her ass and her panties, and she kept having to pull it down because she knew how short that sweatshirt was. Yeah, it was very uncomfortable. It was really not okay. (laughs) Not to, like, judge anyone for how they dress. However, it basically looked like a high school girl wearing no pants. Yeah. Like, when it just looks like you're not wearing pants, there's an issue. Yeah. I just feel like that's probably not okay. Plus, she wasn't wearing, like... Like, if she was wearing boxer shorts or something, be like, okay, that's a weird choice, but cute. But she was wearing just, like, flat out a pair of panties. Like, really skimpy panties. Like, you just... I don't know. It made me feel uncomfortable. How did her, the the other thing too, she was with a huge group of friends. Like, how did one of her friends not be like, hey, Allison, your ass ass is is hanging out. Literally hanging out of your sweatshirt. Okay. She needs better friends. (laughs) I mean, yes, that whole group of girls looked like they were not great friends. They, they literally were probably just like Kelly, (laughs) like. They probably were the ones to sleep with each other's boyfriends and answer the door on Halloween. So, anyways. Okay, getting back to the movie now. So, that's basically what she's wearing. Rachel storms off, obviously. Brady runs after her and is, like, trying to convince her to not storm off. I don't know why. Like, what does he think she's going to do? Go back to the house and hang out with Kelly or something? Like, watch a pizza or something? Or watch a pizza please leave that in (laughs) no i can't it's my brain my brain gets so jumbled sometimes when i talk i just like because you know i talk very quickly yes like it's funny because for this podcast i try to talk slower than normal but my brain is like moving at a thousand miles a minute so sometimes i combine my sentences and my thoughts so if you think i talk fast in this podcast you should meet me in real life anyway So, Rachel basically is not having any of Brady's ish because she's a strong, independent woman who does not need that and tells Brady to go back to Little Miss Hot Panties and then she leaves. Please tell me that was actually what she said. She No, that's a direct quote. Awesome. (laughs) I love it. 
Okay, so then there's, an, just to give you an idea of how dumb the kill scenes in this movie are, there's this part where they're at, like, the power plant, like a power station or something, and Michael takes one of the workers and throws his body on two of these, like, little towers, which causes a complete short out of that station, and the entire town loses power. Oh my gosh, it's like when a cat walked into a generator here in New Orleans and knocked out an entire section of the city's power. Yeah, but something tells me that, like, that's not how regular power stations work. Okay, so now the power is out in the town. But it's Halloween, so everyone's, like, cool with it. So, okay, there's a really kind of stupid scene where Dr. Loomis and the sheriff are together, and they see Michael Myers, and they're like, oh, my God, it's Michael Myers. So they pull out their guns, and they're almost about to shoot him, and it ends up being a kid wearing, like, a Michael Myers costume and being like, ha-ha, and it's like, you literally almost just got shot, dude. Also, how big is this kid? Well, he's on a di- he's like in a distance. Oh, okay. So it's probably hard, like if you don't have good depth perception, like me, <laughs> like you. <laughs> in case no one has noticed the giant glasses that I wear. <laughs> yeah. So that joke seems all well and good until we get to the scene where there's this group of like, like local yokels with like gun toting, driving pickup truck type things going on. And they see Michael in the bushes, so they just open fire for, like, legitimately, like, 30 seconds of just, like, nonstop gun fire. Oh, wow. And they ended up killing that kid. Oh, my God. So, jokes on that kid. Maybe this is why you don't dress as a legitimate, active, alive serial killer on Halloween who wears a mask. That seems like a bad idea. Don't do it. Jesus. Yeah, it's not that tragic. They literally don't even show the kid's body. The only way you know, the only reason you know that they killed him is because they're like, they shoot, they see Myers in the bushes, so they shoot it up, and then they go and they're like, this is so and so from the town, but they didn't even like show his. I'm I'm guessing they didn't want to show a dead kid. It is kind of a downer. Yeah, I think now you get away with a lot more, but maybe back then, I say back then, it's well. I, I was about to say this is only 88, but that's like 30 years ago. It's also before I was born. Not that far before you're born. Doesn't matter. Okay, so we do get a scene where Kelly and Brady are kind of getting it on by the fire, which I'm only bringing up because when I first saw them, well, first of all, I was like, wow, Brady seems really broken up about Rachel leaving. That is exactly <laughs> what I thought was like, oh, wow, he moved on quick. Though I guess he was already like halfway there when you think about it. Yeah, and I mean, teenagers can't control their hormones. I know a lot of adults that can't control their hormones either, but I digress. Anyway, so the only reason I bring up that scene is because when I saw it, I was like, oh, well, these are two people obviously have to get killed because they've committed the fatal error of having sex. Although they're not, they don't 100% have sex. They get stopped because Kelly's dad, who is revealed to be the sheriff, comes home. And obviously Brady doesn't want to get caught by the sheriff like balls deep in his daughter. So, oh boy. So that doesn't happen. Anyways. Okay. So I'm going to fast forward real quickly through a lot of this stuff because it's kind of boring and we're getting sort of towards the end, even though this is probably only halfway through the movie. Essentially, there's this very long, long, long part of the movie where everybody is like trying to haul up to protect Jamie from Michael Myers. Like they decide to like take posts and like split up and do all these different things. It is literally like 20 minutes of this and nothing really happens other than people being like, we're going to stop Michael. We're going to save Jamie. I don't know. It's whatever. I started to lose interest at this point in the movie. 
So then Kelly comes with some coffee and she's talking to who she thinks is the officer. It's like a guy. It's like a Kelly or Rachel Kelly because it's at the sheriff's house. Oh, okay. So Kelly comes with some coffee to offer to one of the deputies. That's like, like, I don't know. His post is like the sheriff's house and it's a scene from the back. So you obviously know something weird is going to happen. And she's like making the coffee and she's like, I brought you coffee, blah, blah, blah. Well, it turns out that that guy is Michael Myers and the deputy is dead right next to him. And then Michael Myers has the deputy shotgun. So he stands up, basically like backs Kelly against the door, takes a shotgun and then like impales her through the stomach into the wall. And so she's like on the wall. With a shotgun? Yeah. Shotguns are not sharp. I think that's the point. It takes a lot of brute force. You know, the exact same thing happens in Pumpkinhead. Interesting. I think it's supposed to seem more brutal. Okay. It was okay. It also, like, killed her instantly. But let me tell you, that would not happen. You can get stabbed through the gut and live for quite a while. Yikes. Yeah. I would have preferred some more Kelly impaled on the wall through the stomach, like, having a little conversation or something. But it didn't happen. We missed that. Thanks, Halloween 4. God. (laughs) Okay, so anyways, Rachel comes home and she finds um, Kelly dead and screams, even though she probably secretly isn't really that upset about it. Yeah. So, (laughs) it's a really great scream. It's like a classic scream. It's very similar to Jamie Lee Curtis's scream in the first Halloween movie. Yeah, it's cool. She runs upstairs because this is a horror movie, so why wouldn't you? Brady is upstairs. Still in the same house, I guess. So then they try to they try to find Jamie, but Jamie isn't in the house. So then they try to run outside. But they get to the front door and they're like, it's locked, but this is a house. And you're inside the and house. Inside. <laughs> so they can't get it unlocked because apparently these kids are struggling. Struggling. Yeah, I'm trying not to call people stupid anymore, but these are not real people, right? So I could do that if I wanted. So anyways, so they're Teenagers aren't real people. They're struggling. So Brady takes the shotgun and shoots the door thing and then goes, it's metal. God damn it, it's metal. To which Rachel says, what does that mean? And I'm on Rachel's side with this because, like, what the fuck does that mean? Like, first of all, of course it's metal. Also, what does that mean that, like, the gun can't shoot through the door because it's metal? Like, does he think that a residential door is going to withstand a shotgun blast? Well, it does in this movie. (laughs) So So they're, like, trapped in the house. They just don't make doors like they used to. God, I know. Basically, they're like, oh, we're trapped because they, one, couldn't figure out how to unlock a door from the inside and two also could not shoot through the door with a shotgun so anyways um long story short michael chases them upstairs and kills brady and rachel and jamie rachel finds jamie they run up to the roof there's this really dumb scene where rachel's trying to lower jamie to the ground by like tying a wire like a cord like it looks like a cable cord around both of their bodies and then like lowering um jamie but it's at the same time that michael myers is on the roof like trying to attack her so it's weird. Jamie ends up getting down. Rachel ends up falling. And then I think they think she's dead, but she's not. So I'm like really trying to think of the best way to just summarize this up because I know you're dying to know how this ends. Essentially, they end up at the school for some weird reason. Dr. Loomis comes and takes Jamie 
and I guess they decide to hide in the school. I, I can only think because it's the only like other set location they had and they didn't really know where else to go. Yeah, I could see that. So they did that. Michael almost catches them and then Rachel shows up and sprays Michael with a fire extinguisher, which I guess stops him for a second. I don't know why, but it does. I imagine it's a very disconcerting experience. Yeah. So we're getting kind of towards the end. Essentially, the the kind of like gun-toting yokels show up and are like, all right, we're going to get you girls out of town. So they drive the girls out of town. There's this thing where it's like they pass the police and they're like, Michael Myers is chasing us. He's that way. So the police like all drive down the road that way. Well, so then the next time, then they're like continuing to drive and Michael's hand comes up the side of the truck. Like it makes no sense because... Like, what was he just, like, hanging on the side of the truck for this whole way, but decided not to reveal himself until the police had passed? Or, like, underneath? Was he, like, holding on to the axles? Potentially, but it seems very weird. I don't know. So, they get into a struggle while they're driving. He kills everybody, like, all the, like, yokels he kills. And then it's just Jamie and Rachel. They end up crashing the truck to, like, fling Michael Myers forward. And then the police catch up to them. I don't know why the police decided to turn around since they were literally told Michael Myers was back in the town. But whatever. This is almost over, so it's okay. Maybe they all of a sudden realized that those were the same yokels that had killed a (laughs) random ass kid in the bushes. I don't think they told anybody about that. Okay, so then, weirdly enough, they aren't sure if Michael is dead or not. Jamie goes over and, like, holds his hand which is weird. And they're like, um, Jamie, you're going to need to stop doing that. And then Michael's other hand with that had the knife starts to like twitch and come to life. And then Michael stands up. So Jamie, they're like, Jamie, get over here. So she starts like walking away and they're like, get down, get down. And the police like start shooting. So then they shoot Michael Myers and they shoot him a bunch of times. Then he falls backwards into a well that like was like boarded up and stuff. And then it caves in so you can't see the body. I'm sure that's very convenient. And probably how he comes back in Halloween 5. I was going to say, if you don't see the body. Yeah. So then it's kind of like the wrap up. And like Rachel and Jamie go back to the house. And they're all like in shock and shit. And the mom is like, I'm going to take Jamie upstairs for a bath. And Rachel stays downstairs with the dad. So then the mom is drawing the bath. Then what we get is a first person view And you're like, "Uh uh-oh, Michael Myers is back. Well, no, Michael Myers is not back. Because in the first-person view, you see a hand wearing the sleeve of the clown costume that Jamie picked up out, grab this, like, scissor knife situation off the the dresser, go into the bathroom, and then you hear screams, and everybody runs to to the bottom of the stairs. And at the top of the stairs is Jamie in her Michael Myers look like Halloween costume, covered in blood, holding the scissor. And that's how it ends. Bum, bum, bum. Which is how the opening scene to Halloween 1 ended. Yeah. With Michael doing the same thing. So, final thoughts on this movie. It, I know that I've been kind of harsh in talking about it. It wasn't like the worst thing I've ever seen. My big problem with it is that the atmosphere of suspense was really missing for me. Non-existent. Yeah, it just, it didn't have that same feel. I wasn't ever scared or anxious or anything like that. And it is not because this is a movie from like the late 80s and they weren't good at it. I've seen plenty of movies from that time period that did that, that were good at making you feel like jumpy or or whatever. I didn't hate the ending. I thought the ending was good. I'm not sure what it's supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be that like 
whatever was possessing Michael maybe transferred to Jamie when she grabbed his hand. And I am going to go probably well out of my depth of expertise here and say I think the whole thing is that, like, the family is cursed. And that's part of, like, why Michael's like his way, um. that way. But then I I don't know. It's like that. That is that why Michael is trying to kill all the members of the family? I don't know. That's probably not right. But that just going off of this movie as a standalone, that this is where my brain was going was like, so now she's like the new Michael Myers. Obviously, she I don't think is, but that's kind of like what I was thinking. And I like that it had this the nods to the original Halloween movies. I think that it may have been, to be honest, too heavy handed at times. Yeah. And I think it was the executive producer trying to capture well to be truthful to capture the money from the first two halloween movies after the third one flopped so bad just pretending the third one doesn't exist yeah so not the best thing i've seen not i guess not the worst thing i've seen it's the problem is it was flat there were very there was not really like an arc to the plot at all it was just kind of like michael comes back he murders a bunch of people some cops shoot him and then Jamie kills her step, her foster mom. I don't know. It left me a little bummed out. Anyway, that's Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. Now, I am excited to hear about this great book that you're going to talk about. Great is generous. All right, so this week I am doing the 1986 novel Evil Dreams. And this was actually the book that we had a picture in our Instagram story several weeks ago because I read ahead uh, with all the page flags in it. I only like mentioned that as if it were, were noticeable because a couple of my friends actually like made mention of that post. So if anyone else noticed, thank you for noticing. Do you want to explain your flag, your uh, page flag system? Oh, I just have page flags for various different um, categories of shocking events. I have, like, I have it's color coded. So there's like a racism one and a sexism one and a pedophilia one. Yeah, Cole is like, um, he has a little is hyper organizational. Is that a, is there a disorder like that? Because I feel like that's what you are. It, it, I don't think it's it's not compulsive. It just makes me happy. <laughs> I like to color coordinate things. Yeah, I mean we are like totally opposites. I am basically chaos, and Cole is like a hundred percent order, and we meet in the middle <laughs> in a big clash. <laughs> I drag Max into the middle. <laughs> anyway, uh, Evil Dreams was written by John Teagues. It's T-I-G-G-E-S. For some odd reason, that says Teagues in my mind. Uh, He apparently is the best-selling author of Kiss Not the Child. I'm with that message, I guess. Yeah, never heard of it, but I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Just maybe you shouldn't. Um, The cover is quite nice. Uh, the, The artist is sadly unknown. It's a misty forest. Tree roots that look like a skull. A mysterious red mist that has literally nothing to do with the story. It's pretty great. They pro- I mean, it looks... It, it looks evil and dreamlike? I wouldn't say it looks dreamlike, but it does look evil. And I feel like people love those sort of like rooty trees. Yes. This is now like the third book that I've done where the cover has something to do with trees. Yeah. So 
Trees are spooky. That's why we have to chop them all down. Exactly. God, I'm going to hell. Uh, The tagline says, trapped in a nightmare world, he is the helpless prisoner of his evil dreams. Not like the funniest tagline, but you know, it's pretty good. That's okay. But let's go ahead and do the blurb real fast because I want to jump into the actual story of this book because it is wild. So, all his life, John Ward has been plagued by a recurring nightmare, one that plunges him again and again into a world of mindless terror and haunts his waking hours. Desperate to discover the source of his evil dreams, John seeks psychiatric treatment to no avail. If anything, his fantasies become stronger, more horrific, until at last he becomes aware of the presence of another personality within him, speaking through his lips, demanding to be reborn and to complete the subjugation of mankind thwarted long ago to his maniacal will. So it's a coming out story. (laughs) What? Well, you know, like, that's the whole thing about um, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is that Freddy is, like, inside the guy and is, like... I mean, who hasn't had someone named Freddy inside of them? (laughs) But the whole thing is that it's, like, a metaphor for, like, coming out. Oh, well, I haven't seen Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Mm. Sir. Anyway, so let's take a quick look at this nightmare. It starts with cheering. Then John is running through some woods. He trips on a tree root. Then the trees start turning into people who are chasing after him. Then he encounters a woman. She dies. And then he shoots himself. In the dream? Yes. Don't they say that if you die in your dream, you die in real life? Is that real? I think that's just superstition. I don't I don't know that I ever die in my dreams, though. I feel like I usually do wake up. I've fallen a lot. Like from height, yes. like tall buildings. Well, you're afraid of heights. So I imagine you fall from heights a lot in your dreams. Well, weirdly enough. I I have a lot of flying dreams where like I can fly, but it's almost like swimming. Like I have to like propel myself through the air. But what I do have a lot of that I get anxiety is I have these dreams where I can kind of fly slash jump really high and I'll do it. And then I go super high and then I realize how high up I am and that I'm falling and I can't stop my fall. That happens a lot. That sounds awful. Mm, yeah. Very I terrible. I don't get those th- that much anymore. I used to get them as a kid all the time, though. I had a dream as a kid that I was at the mall and a vampire was attacking people and he kidnapped me and had me like tied to a table and there was like a spotlight shining on my stomach because apparently that's how he fed. Uh, And he was like going in towards my stomach to bite into me and his fangs wiggled. I just remember the wiggly fangs. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I was a weird kid. Weird fucking kid. (laughs) All right. Back to... Uh, evil dreams. Okay. So the blurb has already let us know he's seeing a therapist. Uh, and aside from the dream, that's basically the opening scene. I'm jumping over a lot of points because I really just want to talk about the crazy shit. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, pretty early on in the book, John's wife, Trina, comes home from work to find John in the midst of his nightmare. But this time, when the nightmare ends, his face is covered in blood. In real life. <laughs> For... <laughs> All I can think of is the first time I saw you with your, like, face peel mask thing. Oh, my God. Which, this is not, like, the beginning of a relationship. This is, like, a new thing that he started. No, that's the thing. I've been using that mask for, like, a year. What? Yes. How did I just see you with this for the first time? Because you're usually on your computer while I'm getting ready for bed. Okay, 
backstory. Every single Sunday night, I use an exfoliating mask that is basically acid and it's bright red. I mean, it looks like it looks like the special effects they put on people with like in movies when their faces are peeled off, like like in Hellraiser and stuff like that when they do that. And I just walked into the bathroom and saw you and was like, what the fuck is going on in here? I mean, it's it's not even like bright red, like, oh, it looks like you have red paint on. It is like dr- half dried blood red. It looks like I'm wearing the blood of my enemies. Maybe I am. Maybe that's the secret to my youth. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's placenta. Or it's just acid. Yeah, so it was um, a little alarming, but that's... The reason I chuckled is because when you said his face is covered in blood, that's all I could think of is your face when I walked in on you the first time and you had that mask on. Anyway. Anyway. So. So Trina comes home and. Yeah. And his face is covered in blood. So she panics. And literally she has this thought process of who should I call? Should I call the paramedics? Should I call the hospital? Should I call our like normal doctor? Like, there's just so many options. And then she, like, has a moment where she can't decide. And instead of calling 911, all of a sudden she's like, oh, my gosh, I'm just going to call his psychiatrist. Hmm. What is he doing? Is he conscious at this time? No, he's not. He's, like, still dreaming, but technically the nightmare itself is over. It, like, flips back and forth between their perspectives. So, you know, the nightmare is already over, but he's still asleep. His face is covered in blood. And she's like, oh, my God, I don't know what to do. Like, just call 911. It's three digits, girl. Three digits. I'll give her the benefit of the doubt because not everybody reacts to stressful situations in the same way. Maybe she was having a little bit of a panic moment. But in this panic, instead of being able to remember to call 911, she remembered a 10-digit phone number for a psychiatrist. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. Anyway, uh, skipping forward even more, uh, at the hospital, John is undergoing some tests, and they use, like, local anesthesia, but for some odd reason, it makes him tired. I don't know. Well, a lot of times when you get local anesthesia, you do get a sedative. Not that they made... I'm not saying they put that in the book, but that does happen. They give you a general sedative. So maybe that made him tired? I don't know. Well, he falls asleep, and he has the dream again, but this time... It's like the extended cut. So after shooting himself, he is floating over some land when he is all of a sudden overwhelmed with lust. (laughs) Okay. Uh, And descends down because he's like flying over land, descends down into, I think, like a tunnel. Um, Still like super horny. And there is a man in a uniform and he's standing over a cowering woman while undoing his belt. But it's, that's not him, though. No, he's okay. this, still this, like, floating entity. But then all of a sudden, John becomes the man, assaults the woman. Hmm. I'm saying assault. You know what I mean. Yeah. And then he wakes up. But wait. There's even more. Hmm. Okay. Not long after that, because of bulk of this story takes place over just, like, two months Uh, John and Trina are on a trip. This is like the weekend after he went to the hospital. And John has the extended cut version of the nightmare again. But this time when he reaches the part in the tunnel, he, in his sleep, straddles his wife and tries to rape her, all while screaming, Ich lebe noch, 
which is German for I still live, for those of you who don't speak German like Max does. Uh, The comical part of this entire scene is that due to his supernatural power of the dream, his muscles are bulging out and his penis is absolutely massive. (laughs) Just like huge dick. There are multiple references in this scene to just how big his dick is now. Monstrous is one of the words used to describe it. This is getting like dangerously close to like rape fantasy, I think. Well, Trina gets away. Good for her. She runs from the giant dick. Uh, at which point, oh no, no, you don't sigh out of your laughter yet because it gets better. Uh, at which point, John starts to frantically hump the bed, then lays on his stomach and starts making like a swimming motion. Okay. Then curls up in a ball and falls asleep. Or like, you know, the dream is over and just continues to sleep. Why the swimming motion? I'll get there. Okay. So that was like a weekend trip. And on Monday, John has an appointment with his therapist. He uses hypnosis to better analyze the dream. And when John wakes up from the hypnosis, his response is, why is my mother in this dream? Remember the cowering woman? Oh, the therapist mother. No. Oh. No, 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 no. no. John wakes up from the hypnosis and says, why is my mother in this dream? Okay, John says that. So here's where I'm going to go ahead and spoil it. And tell you that John is possessed by Hitler. (laughs) Oh, boy. John is possessed by Hitler because apparently when Hitler killed himself, his spirit possessed not the man that was about to rape John's mother, but a single sperm in that man's testicle. Oh, my God. There's even a description when John is having a nightmare at some point of like needing to swim the fastest and having to be the first to get there. Like there, he literally like has a dream of being ejaculate. I'm just picturing the Hitler sperm with like the little mustache <laughs> just trying to swim through everybody out of my way. <laughs> oh my God. Um, so that is actually what the swimming motion is. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Is the portion of the dream when he's, like, an ejaculated sperm into his own mother's vaginal canal. Oh. (laughs) And then curling up into a ball is when he's the fetus. His own fetus. So it's like... Possessed by Hitler. It's like an interpretive dance of becoming himself kind of from hitler sperm to conception but not actually hitler sperm but wait a second i'm sensing a little bit of a plot hole in this book because john is an adult right now right yes so if john has always been hitler sperm into kid why wasn't he hitler as a kid so it is actually explained weirdly enough i left it out of my notes because it was kind of one of the drier parts um but remember he's had this dream his entire life okay and the theory is that when he finally goes to see a psychiatrist and they start like unlocking the trauma or whatever hitler is able to get a stronger hold over john's mind his therapist brings out the hitler in him exactly okay 
This book is outrageous. I told you. <laughs> Which, again, like... Do you know, and I feel like I say this very regularly, do you know how hard it was to be sitting next to you, read that part, and actually, I will show you my notes to prove this to you. In the very beginning, from the dream, so you know how the trees turn into people? Mm -hmm. It talks about them all being dressed the same and being really skinny and emaciated, and I was like, that sounds suspiciously like Holocaust survivors. If this turns into a Nazi metaphor, I'm going to be so angry. And there's like four or five references throughout my notes before it's confirmed where I'm like, oh my God, is he Hitler's son? Is he possessed by Hitler? Is this going to be where this goes? And then it happened and I was like, I knew it. I fucking knew it. And I even told Denise. I told Denise one of the days that I was driving her to work that that was my theory because I wanted to have like actually told someone so I could prove that I guessed it. God. But we're not done. Oh. Meanwhile, while all of this is happening, John's psychiatrist's secretary, it's a lot of S sounds, uh, her name is Tori. She has been stealing transcripts of appointments to give them to her extremely abusive boyfriend, Howie, so that he can blackmail patients. Seems unethical. Very. Their relationship is like, so actually, her behavior towards him is very like, Harley Quinn and the Joker. So much so that I actually looked up when Harley Quinn first appeared to make sure, like, to see if she was inspired. She wasn't. Mm -hmm. Like, it was, I think Harley Quinn, like, first appeared in, like, 90 or something. And this is 86. But it it was very, like, sure thing, Mr. J. Like, Uh. that, that sort of. Basically, he would just say something outlandish and she'd be like, sure, fine. And actually, in all of that, there is a really superfluous part where Howie blackmails a closeted gay man who subsequently kills himself. Yikes. I guess it's not superfluous. It gets the police involved. Whatever. It's whatever. There is like a weirdly progressive for the 80s moment where Tori is like, actually thinks to herself, you know, I really wish she didn't feel the need to be closeted. I don't think there's anything wrong with being gay. But that doesn't stop her from giving the transcripts to Howie so that he can blackmail the man. Oh, yeah. Long story short, Howie somehow remembers after reading John's transcripts from his appointments, hearing about Nazi treasure that's buried in the United States. In the defense of this author, there are rumors of Nazi treasure buried all over the world. Sure. Anyway, buried in the United States. And he decides that he's going to kidnap John because when John was hypnotized, a special word triggers John's hypnotic state. So how he's like, we're going to kidnap him. We're going to use the special word to trigger the hypnotic state. And then we're going to make him take us to the treasure. Because apparently during one of the appointments, John shouted out uh, coordinates. (laughs) okay for where the treasure is the coordinates are just near four corners in the southwest which is where arizona utah new mexico and colorado all meet yes and make right angles and apparently not far from there is a town called cistern which is basically like an abandoned town and somewhere in cistern there is a large swastika And that marks the treasure. Swastika marks the spot. 
Okay. But oh no. While kidnapping John, basically on the day that a psychiatrist isn't coming into the office, Tori calls John and is like, Dr. So-and-so needs you to come in. Da-da-da-da-da. And when John comes in, Howie says the password to the hypnotic state to kidnap him. But oh no, when he was kidnapping John, Howie accidentally tripped the recorder that's in the office. So when the psychiatrist goes back later, it reveals the whole plan. What was the, what's the hidden password to make him think of it? Blue trees. Oh my God. Do you know what's so funny about that? I was literally about to say, is it something silly like blueberries? Close enough. That's so crazy. So once they realize John is missing, you have Trina and you have the psychiatrist and the psychiatrist's girlfriend. I'm not really talking about that relationship because it was unnecessary. You know, they come to the office trying to find John. They listen to the recording and they're off to save the day. There's like a weird series of events where, first of all, the police are like, we'll help you get to the airport to make this flight to the Southwest because the story takes place in Chicago. Uh, we're going to get a helicopter for you. Unrealistic. <laughs> when they get to the Southwest, the psychiatrist calls a helicopter company to charter a helicopter. He just happens to know the phone number for a helicopter company in the Southwest, even though he lives in Chicago. Anyway, everything converges on Cistern. I'm basically just going to summarize it and say that they rescue John, but somehow, during the course of the confusion... Everyone's actions recreates the dream, like the running and the tripping and the bodies, like the trees turning into people. And the dream is a metaphor for the rise and fall of Hitler. And this scares the spirit of Hitler so much that he flees John's body. (laughs) And as they're flying off in a helicopter, the narration informs us that the center of this abandoned town is a crossroads. And all of those streets have right angles out from the center Forming the giant swastika. Bum, bum, bum. I don't know. Whatever. I guess that's where... I guess the treasure is directly under the center of town. Do they dig it up or they just reveal that? They just reveal that at the end. And you might think that's it. But it's not. There's an epilogue. It's good because I was wondering what happened. I know, right? So we go to the home of two of pretty much the only people who we're explicitly told are people of color. We go to the home of Jose Javier and his wife, Teresa Marie Alejandra. (laughs) (laughs) And Jose is about to make love to his wife in a very consensual, loving way. When he all of a sudden starts shouting, Ich lebe noch, and his muscles start bulging and his erection grows in front of her eyes. And that's basically the end. But I would like to point out that Trina ran away from the giant dick. But Miss Teresa Marie Alejandra looked at it with eagerness and literally is like, stick it in. I don't get why this. So this author has this what fantasy that Hitler has a giant dick. I have no idea. I mean, this is like some Chuck Tingle level stuff. I I don't know. There's just a lot of talk about real big dicks. But it's basically like the Hitler dick. I thought you were going to say the epilogue was something super cute. Like cut to five years later and Hitler is running like a small cupcake shop in, in the Southwest. 
No, he's just possessed Jose Javier now. This book seems really unnecessary. It was unnecessary, but it was a lot of fun. I will say the time period that this book takes place over as far as like it's like April to June or something encompasses a lot of important events in World War II. And they make a lot of connections between Hitler's life and John's life. So if you're like a World War II history buff, it might be kind of interesting. It's batshit, but it's well done batshit. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know if... I guess you'd also have to have an interest in Hitler's dick a little bit, but sure. Just a little. We've all had that weird dream. Mr. Teagues clearly did. Anyway, all in all, because although it was a shit show, it was a well-done shit show, I would give this book four out of five Hitler sperms. Yuck. Um, anyways. <laughs> oh, God. So I feel like I know what your reaction to Hitler's dick would be, but if you were in this book, <laughs> would you die? Are you asking if I would die for the dick? Well, I know that question, but honestly, it doesn't sound like that many people die in this book. No, not really. Actually, weirdly enough, like, Howie falls into this chasm and Tori falls in or jumps in with him. Of course she does. And they're the only two who die. So I'm assuming you would not. No, I don't think I would. But it's also just so weird that I don't know where I would fit into this story. <laughs> would you die in Halloween 4? <laughs> mm, probably not. Because there are a lot of people that die. But Michael Myers is actually very easy to get away from because he never runs. Like I said, he always... Looks a little constipated. And he's never in a hurry. Also, knowing that Michael is only ever after, like, his family members, I would just avoid them. Like, everyone dies trying to protect this little girl. And I'm like, you've literally had, like, 20 people dying just to save this girl. Why not just just give her to Michael? Holy cow. Anyway, I don't think so. Like I said, he you can literally just run away from him. He He wouldn't be chasing me. So if I, like, saw him, I would just, like... Pivot, turn, and walk away. And that's how I would save myself from Michael Myers. Take notes, people. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. If you would like to contact us or just get more of our scintillating personalities, you can find us on social media at Second to Die Pod on Twitter and Instagram and Goodreads if you're curious about what I'm reading next. You can also email us. It's secondtodiepod at gmail.com. Really anything you want to talk about, questions, comments. But if you want me to do a specific movie or if you want to tell Cole to read something, you can also email us there. Or, you know, slide into our DMs. Whatever you want to do. It's your life, I guess. God. Also, if you feel like rating, reviewing, subscribing. That does help us out. It sparks joy. We do appreciate it. It's nice to know that people are listening. If you... You know, or if you think that there's something really off about the way that we do these, you know, we're just trying to, we're just, we're just two guys trying to have a hobby here and entertain. Anyway. (laughs) And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.